Stand with me if you would. We're going to read the gospel. This is a long reading. This is a gospel, what they call a pericope. It's a, it's a story vignette. This one is the one about Jesus hearing about his buddy Lazarus dying and his response to the story, what happens in his thinking, what he communicates and articulates to his disciples is very provocative. I want to read the text to you. The story is quite long. It's 40 verses. And after I read it, I want to just walk through it and give you four little nuggets that I feel I've bumped into as I've read these texts or this particular text. So let's start. John 11 and 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Martha, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love, your friend, he's sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, watch, this sickness will not end in death, not permanently, for it is for God's glory so that the God, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. They go, Rabbi, wait a minute. This isn't smart. I mean, just a short time ago, they were trying to kill you over there. And why would you be trying to go back there? Right? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? I think he's being metaphorical here. A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Right? And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, well, Wait a minute. If he sleeps, he'll get better. Right? I mean, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay? And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> they were saying stuff like that up until the point where he actually was going to his death, and they scattered. <laughs> A lot of talk going on here. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Mary had heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. When Martha heard, then Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if, if you had been here, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him earlier. 
And when the Jews who had been with Mary came to the house, they were comforting her. They noticed how quickly she got up and went out. And so they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, just like her sister had said, Lord, if you had been here, if you'd just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We sent for you. Where were you? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. God was troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, well, couldn't he have come here? I mean, couldn't he have, he that's opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? Again, the same thing Mary and Martha had said. But some of them said, or Jesus once more moved deeply, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when Jesus said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen, and a cloth was around his face. It looked like a mummy. Jesus said to them, take off that stuff. Take off those grave clothes and let him go. We say the word of the Lord, and you respond. Thanks be to God. Go and be seated. Let me carve out four pieces of this meat of the word and uh, four little reflections on this. The first one is simply this, that when Jesus in this story first hears about Lazarus, it's very interesting that he has a sense of what's going to happen. He has this premonition of what's going to occur. And we, we see that again, if you look at verse 4, when Jesus heard about Lazarus, he said, this sickness is not going to end like you think. It's going to end differently. No, God is going to be glorified in this. The Son of God will be glorified in this. And it says again that Jesus loved Martha and his sister and his Lazarus, and yet and Lazarus, Lazarus, and yet he stays, even though Lazarus is sick, he stays where he is for two more days. He has this sense that he knows what's going to happen. Paul in his writing, calls this kind of supernatural knowledge or this kind of grace. He calls it the word of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 11. The word of wisdom is this this ability to perceive what's going to happen. There are times that God gives us capacities to have some sense that something's going to happen. Um, Lots of you have had this happen in your life. Maybe you've never noticed it, but it's that time when you have this sense that a situation is just, it's going to turn out all right. You don't know why you feel that way. You don't know why you know that. But somehow in your gut, you just say, no, this is going to be okay. And you you say it and you're surprised that you're even saying it. But there's that sense of knowing inside you. Or or sometimes it can be a sense that something bad is coming. That you have just this sense in your heart, no, we need to pray for this or I need to act here. Something's up. Something's not right. And you have this sense. It's not even always in your head. You can make sense of it. But somehow in your gut, you feel it. 
Um, or, or it may be that you know something bad has just happened to a loved one or a friend. My sister Lisa was in a pretty serious car accident years ago. And my mom called me and she said, Lisa was in a car accident and we talked about it and she was okay. And she said, the weirdest thing happened to me. She said, when it happened, and it was miles from where my mom was, she said, I knew it when it happened. I knew it. I started praying for Lisa. She said, what the heck was that? <laughs> I said, well, Mom, that's sometimes God just gives us knowings. Sometimes there are spiritual glimpses. I think we generally think that of God's realm being God's realm and our realm being our realm, that they're two distinct places. But in, in biblical thought, they're more like they're joined. God's realm is mixed with our realm. And somehow uh, our realm really is fully his, in his realm. Our Father, we pray, who art in heaven. But really a more, more accurate translation would say our Father who is in the heavens. Or even better than that is our Father who is in all that is. Our Father who exists in all that is. He is the one who is all and in all, right? Uh, it shouldn't surprise us that we bump into eternal glimpses. That sometimes we get this sense of knowing that we would have no other way of knowing than that somehow God has given it to us. Even historically pagans, people that are not clear on who God exactly is, get these glimpses. It's interesting, we see it in Matthew 2, where the Magi, these worshipers of stars, they're pagans. And yet it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. How in the world do these pagan worshipers pick up on this? Because somehow the eternal is all around us. And if you can learn to listen, you'll pick up on stuff. It's interesting that even the Greek sibyls, these are these women that would put themselves into a frenzy and they would have these prophecies, these oral speeches that they would give under the influence of whatever they were doing. We don't know what the heck they were doing. But there was prophecies about the coming of a ruler during the time of Jesus' entrance into the world. It's, what is that going on? I think what happens, and at least what the church has historically said, is even people that are confused and even people that don't understand what's going on, if they can pick up on the eternal because it's right here. You can bump into it right here. Now, the closer you walk with God, the more it becomes clear and intentional. We can pick up on stuff. What I, what I love about this is that the wall between the eternal and the temporal is permeable. I love that. Which means there's hope for God to give us knowings about our lives. Second thing that's in that I observe from this particular story, it comes from verse 7, picking up in verse 7. It has to do with the difference between true faith and what, what you could call fake faith or presumption. We pick it up in verse 7. Jesus says to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, that's crazy. I mean, just a little bit ago, the Jews tried to kill you when we were over there in Judea. Why would you go back there? And Jesus said, Now there, there are hours of daylight. A man who walks by day. Or in other words, if you have light about a thing... You won't stumble because you'll see by the light. It is when you don't have light. It's when you walk in the night. You don't know where you're going. You just, you'll end up stumbling because you have no light. What he's saying is, if you have light about a thing, if you have a sense of God's direction about a thing, you can do some pretty crazy things. If you have a sense that God's leading you, you can be crazy. Right? Like going back to where people tried to kill you and all of a sudden you go back and they don't. 
which was Jesus' case. Or sometimes you may feel a sense that you, that you can uh, of God leading you to start a business on a shoestring, which is crazy. And yet sometimes you can have a confidence inside because God's leading you there. Or some of you may feel in the future to move to a new city. And you don't even have a job yet. That's stupid. But if God leads you, you get to do stupid. Right? Um, there's a kid, a young man in our context culture, Scarborough. He's, um, he's been working with YWAM for the last few years. But I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago. He was at one of the house churches. And I'm talking to him and I'm saying, well, where are you at with your money? Because he's, mo- he's moving to, t- to Turkey. That's a long place away. long way is Turkey. And he's going to be on a YWAM ship doing some ministry. And I'm asking him, you know, where, where are you, do you have all your money yet? He said, no. Well, most of us would go, well, then I guess you're not going. But he said, no, I'm going. You don't have your money yet? Nope. And before the end of the week when he took off, he had all the money he needed. <laughs> That's crazy. Right? But somehow when you get something light in your gut, that something's of God, you start thinking thoughts like this, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Or what Jesus said when he said, all things are possible to him that believes. And so when you get light, I, you get this sense of confidence and you can do stuff that most people just can't conceive of doing. You get a sense that you can do it. The problem is we don't control that sense of confidence. And if you try to jack it up in yourself, you really are just being stupid. Right? This sense of, of I can do all things, that kind of thing. If you get it, you get to be as crazy as much as that light is or that confidence is. But if you don't get it, you need to default to being wise, prudent. You need to use common sense. <laughs> yeah. That means God wants you to use your head because he actually gave you one. Right? If God tells you to do something crazy, you can do it. If he doesn't, you need to be wise and just do the normal stuff. When we were in pastoring in Wisconsin, we were there for about 17 years, uh, I have this sense, we're in this little building uh, where there, it only sat about 100 people or so, and we're in this little building, it would cost about $400 a month. We were barely making it. The church was just starting out. We were barely making that payment along with our responsibilities. And But I knew we were at the seams. We couldn't grow and this building opened up in our town that sat, you know, would considerably more, 800 or 400 or something. And I remember thinking, well, that would be a great building. But when I called about it, they wanted $1,200 a month. Well, we weren't making the payment on 400. I was barely making it. And so 1200 plus utilities, which was another five or $600. And I'm thinking, there is no way we can do that. And yet after I found out about it, I kept thinking, we need to do that inside. My head was thinking, don't think that. It's stupid. Don't even think about that. My heart was going, we need to do this. There was light. You need to, you need to go back to Judea where they will kill you. you know, it was like, no, I don't want to die. I want to live. You know? And I was fighting this in my head and in my heart so much so, I'm in the middle of the night. I wasn't even sleeping. I got to the point where I wasn't sleeping. And I would sit up. And I remember one particular night as I'm sitting up, almost going to throw up. I felt like God was saying, you need to do this. You need to go get that building. And I finally said, Okay. So I called the guy up the next morning. We went and got that building. And what completely shocked me is those were the easiest payments we ever made. The church grew. Everything worked perfectly. But here's what happened. I got overconfident. I started thinking, praise God. You know, I can do miracles. Just give me an idea and I'll make it happen. Praise the Lord. Look out world. Here comes Edwin. Right? So when it got time to build a building, because we outgrew that building, 
we started building this building and people were asking me, what do you want to do? I said, man, we'll just do it. Man. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Didn't put a committee together, just walked with this guy who was the building guy and we put the whole thing together. It was supposed to cost $500,000 turnkey, you know, done, finished. And after we got in it, things were going a little weird and I kept thinking, oh, God's good, you know. And they said, are you concerned about this? No, man, God will provide, right? $1.2 million later. And I remember the day that it hit me, we are going to die. I mean, God, you've got to help us. And it was like God went quiet. There, there, it was like we were scraping. I'm, I'm telling you, for two years, we would have to stand on the stage pretty often and ask people to pay our AT&T bill, ask people to pay different bills. We had to just, it's amazing we didn't divide and get destroyed. We made it through it. But I remember praying and saying, God, why? You know, why didn't this happen? Why aren't you here? Why isn't this easy? And finally, some year and a half into this later, I remember hearing in my heart, it's because I didn't ask you to do it. You should have just used your ad. It's like throwing water on the witch. My pretty. (laughs) I felt like a total idiot because I was a total idiot. Because I was walking in the darkness. I wasn't walking in light. When I was um, in the late 80s, when I, I was, uh, my son David was probably, he's my third born, he was, he was probably about four. And Elizabeth, my daughter, was probably about two. I had this dream in the middle of the night. And I'm driving down this highway. It was a six-lane highway. And, it, 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 and as we're driving, I was, I was sitting with a Bible on my lap in my dream. I have the Bible in my lap. And I'm talking to David and listening. And I'm reading a Bible verse to him, and I'm talking, I say, you know, talking about Jesus and their little baby language, you know. And we're talking about it. Every once in a while, I'd look up and steer. And then we'd talk to them and laugh. Ha, ha, ha. I'd look up and steer, right? And, which is totally stupid. But there was some sense in the dream that I'm not going to die. I'm in God's will. Everything is perfect. And just as I looked up right in the later part of the dream, as I looked up, I'm, I see myself, the, the whole highway had turned and it became a bridge. And I saw myself shooting off with the car on the railing. We go off into oblivion. And as we're cruising out, broke through the, you know, the wall and we're out in oblivion going to die. I remember looking at Dave and listen saying, now kids, we're going to go see Jesus right now. And I woke up in the middle of this dead of night. I woke up and I heard, I I really believe this was God because I know how I think. I I heard, I feel God in my heart saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And I immediately thought of the verse where Jesus, where the devil said to Jesus, if you put yourself on the pinnacle, you come to the pinnacle of the temple. He said, go ahead and cast yourself down. You're the son of God. Go ahead. God will will keep you from being hurt. Go ahead and do it. And Jesus looks at him and says, Get behind me, Satan. He says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. The idea there was that if, if you don't have a direct leading of God, don't do stupid things because you will die. On some level, I think what, the, what, what, what I think we can learn from this story is that never fake confidence. Never fake light. Don't fake faith. That's presumption. It's not faith. If you don't get any real specific direction, it's okay to use your head. But realize there'll be times in your life where God will ask you to do something crazy. And that's okay too. The third observation from this text that I love is is this idea that it's easier to fix things than it is to weep over things. 
We pick it up in verse 32 where Mary reaches the place where Jesus was and he saw him and she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along also with her, they were weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now what's crazy is Jesus knew the outcome of this. He knew Jesus was, that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. He knew it. So why did he cry? <laughs> why not just tell everybody, guys, chill, it's cool. In just a couple of minutes, shazam. This is going to be fixed. Don't freak out. I've come to deliver the situation. But he doesn't do that. Christian theology insists on this point. That the incarnation was not just God coming into the world to fix everything. In the moment, like a 911 first responder. That's not why he came. He didn't just come to fix everything that's wrong. Now, the incarnation has an arc of fix in it, to be sure. I mean, and there will be a day when all wrongs will be put to right, where everything will be fixed, no question about it. But incarnation is as much about God becoming flesh and being among us and tasting what we taste and seeing what we see. It's as much about that as, in fact, more about that than God ultimately fixing everything. The incarnation, see, God became flesh. He became one of us. He tastes fully what it is to be human. One day, what is right will prevail. One day, every loss will be restored. Every loss. We read it in Revelations 21 where the John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven, the first earth, they passed away. And there will no longer be any sea. He's not necessarily talking literally that there will be no seas. The word, this idea of image of no sea from the Old Testament was, the sea was always symbolic of uncontrolled evil. And what he's saying is there's going to be a day, a new kind of world will emerge, a new kind of time will emerge, where there won't be evil to pale the good. That everything that is good will remain good. And it won't be paled. Friendships won't be paled. Families won't be paled. Bodies won't be paled. They won't be eviled. They won't be hurt. There'll be a day, a new day, when all things will remain good. And he says, I saw the new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Every wedding ceremony so jacked with hope. There's no evil there. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, from thrones saying, Now or at last the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every, what? Everything that makes us cry. Every tear will be wiped from our, everything that ever made you cry, the source of it will be wiped away. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There will be a day when every wrong, every rejection, every heartache, every stress you've ever had that's, in, that's full of injustice, there will be a day when all of it will be wiped away. The incarnation affords that to us, but that day is not yet. In this day, you and I will continue to experience wrongs. As we trust God, some of those wrongs 
will be put to right, right in front of our eyes. Because God does answer prayer and miracles do happen, but it's not always predictable. I wish it were. I used to think it was. If you got my tape series on five ways to absolute miracles. Some wrongs are put to right when Jesus was here. In this story, things were put to right. Lazarus came out of death. There's another story in John, just a few chapters later. In chapter 5, it says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, surrounded by these five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to just hang. The blind, the lame, paralyzed. One guy who was there was an invalid for 38 years. Jesus bumps into him and learned that he had been in this condition for that time. And he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I I have no one to help me. When the pool of water is stirred, when I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the guy is cured. A wrong is righted. And he gets up and he walks. See, this was the work of God. But when you read the whole story, you realize after this guy gets up and walks, after this Jesus comes and fixes this guy's life, there's a great number of folks who weren't fixed. And if you think Jesus healed everyone everywhere he went, You have not carefully read the Gospels. And to be honest with you, and I'm at fault here, some of us have been mistaught. Some of us, particularly in charismatic life, believe that God's always trying to do a miracle everywhere. That the goal of God's life expressed is a miracle. I think God does miracles. But most of the time, it's been my experience after over 30 years of pastoral care, Most of the times, miracles that we want don't happen. Other kinds of miracles that we don't necessarily want happen. What you do see in Jesus consistently is not everyone being healed. But what you do see consistently is that everywhere Jesus goes, with everyone he meets, he is filled with compassion. He he has not a miracle of fixing, but a miracle of understanding how people feel. We see this in texts like Mark 6 where it says Jesus landed and saw this large crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus wept in our story about Lazarus. Why? Because I think it was a miracle of solidarity with Mary. A miracle of solidarity with Martha. He felt their loss. He felt their pain and he wept even though he knew he was going to fix it. Even though he knew he was going to fix it, he still waited. Let the thing happen. See, because God is not just promising to make sure that everything is perfect or that you never have any problems in your life. He doesn't promise that. He promises to enter into where we are. He promises that. And I would suggest to you that the miracle of entering in with us and weeping is harder than just fixing it. It's harder to weep than to fix. Just a few weeks ago, I walked into a hospital where 
Gail and I walked in 11.45 at night and we were told a friend of ours, one of our family guys here, had had a heart attack. And uh, we met the nurse in the hall and she said, he's gone. And I wanted to scream. I wanted God to fix this. It's just everything about this is wrong. Everything about this is wrong. Beautiful family, kids, wife. I, w- I wanted God to just raise him from the dead. And, he, and when we were gathering with the family and we were around his uh, lifeless body, I was under my breath saying, Jim, get up, get up. I was hoping somehow God would hear me. But we just stood there and wept. So hard. I wanted it fixed. When you read um, from our story and you realize Jesus didn't prevent the pain that was coming there, even though he knew, he knew Lazarus would raise, why didn't he just go? Why did he wait, as our story says, two more days? Why didn't he just get up, go, and stop it? He didn't prevent the pain. Both of the sisters pointed that out to him. If you had only been here, even the crowd pointed out to him, why couldn't you have been here and stopped this? But it seems that God is not prevented, is not committed to preventing loss in our lives. Losses are sometimes stopped and fixed within a few days, like in this story. But other times our losses, they won't be fixed till the end of days. You say, why? I, I don't know. I am suspicious, though, that the miracle of his presence being with us in pain is greater than the miracle of God fixing everything. I think that fixing is easy for God. But I think God entering into our hearts, into our weeping, into our lives, into our pain, and being with us is the greatest sense of connection. When my mom died a couple years ago, It's so hard to see your parents go. When my mom died, we were all in the same room. We are all hugging. We are all kind of there. She's getting close to her last breath, and you know it. And it's, it's work to die, just like it's work to come into the world. It's hard. And when I was standing there, I remember thinking to myself, man, I would love it if some doctor burst in here with a shot that they'd give her, and my mom would come back and be mom, that little Puerto Rican whacked out lady. You don't fry her Puerto Rican pancakes, I'll tell you that right now. She will freak on you. <laughs> I just wish somebody would have just come in and given the guy, given her a shot. And I'll tell you, if somebody would have, if some doctor would have come in, I, they would have, that doctor, he or she, would have been a, a blessing to us. We might even remember her name. But we would have loved it. I mean, what a great, what a great job to walk into anybody's life and give them a shot that fixed everything. Oh, you're having trouble with your adult son? Here, let me give you this shot. <gasps> We're in love with each other now. <laughs> your marriage is trouble? Here's a shot. And you're perfectly united. Oh, you're dying of this disease? Here, now you will never die. I mean, how many wouldn't love that job? But even though it'd be a cool job, and even though it would get what we'd want, the truth is, if a doctor would have done that, I would have felt less connection with that doctor, even though I'm thankful. But I felt less connected with that doctor than I was connected with those people that were in that room. 
where my mom was dying. And when she died her last breath, gave her last breath, those people that are there, I'm glad they were there. There's something in the fact that they shared the pain and they were with us in the darkness that connected us in a way that a fixer could never connect with us. I'm suggesting to you that there's a connection that happens in weeping. There is a miracle about weeping that Jesus expresses here that is greater than if he would have just fixed it. I quote this from Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, quite a bit in Sanctuary. It's because it so grips me. This little piece, he says, quote, I used to think it curious that when having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say Jesus wept. It is usually done as a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage. But now I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew that we numb ones must always learn again. What we numb ones must always learn again. A, that weeping must be real because endings are real. And B, that weeping permits newness. His weeping, Jesus' weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a fearful dismantling because it means the end of all machismo, the end of all control. Weeping is sometimes something kings rarely do without losing their thrones and they'll weep. Yet the loss of thrones is precisely what's called for. If we want his throne in our lives, weeping. Our gospel reading tells us that Jesus is with us in our pain. It tells us that he's weeping with us. It tells us he's not just with you when all is well. It tells us that he is not just with you when there's no pain. He is there when you hear the bad news. He is there when you lose your job. He is there when your spouse cheats on you. He is there when you can't seem to break that addiction. He is there when you are clouded with guilt. He is there feeling that guilt with you. He's in it with you. He's weeping over what you weep over. He is hurting over what you're hurting over. He is with us. Jesus is with us. This beautiful story in the Old Testament about Hagar, who's a reject. She's a slave. She's Abraham's second, you know, that the, the maid, the handmaid that he ends up getting pregnant and ends up with Ishmael. And the whole family turns against her. Sarah turns against her and she runs out and she's out in the middle of the desert and she goes out there precisely to die. And when she's out there and nobody knows her, she has no value. She, has, she is a slave that has been completely rejected. And you know what God says to her when she's out there in the middle of the desert? I remember this in King James. I don't know why I remember it in King James, but I remember it in King James. God comes to her and says, What aileth thee, Hagar? What aileth thee? He met her in the worst place she would ever imagine to be. This is incarnation. This is faith. This is the miracle. Not that everything's righted in your life. One day it will be. One day everything will be put to right. It may not be here. 
But the thing we should grasp onto when it comes to faith is this idea that no matter what I'm going through, even if I'm in the depths of sin, the psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, why did you ever do that? If I run and I'm at the farthest, remotest part of the sea, and I'm in a place where the light around me is darkness, I'm so lost, I'm so hopeless, I'm so alone, yet even there your hand holds me. That's faith. The God who's with us. Emmanuel, God with us, not just to fix it. But that he gets us. He gets how much you hurt. He gets how much you've been rejected. He feels your pain. He said, when you're naked, I'm there with you. When you're hungry, I'm there with you. When you're in prison, I'm there with you. We think if you were really there with me, why would I ever be in prison? And I wouldn't be naked and I wouldn't be hungry. You must not be here with me. And yet incarnation says, oh yes, I am. I weep with you. And then the last observation is from the verse 40 where Jesus said, when he told Mary, he said, didn't I tell you that if you just believe, you'll see the glory of God. And what this means is, is that somehow faith helps us connect to the next right step that opens the door for God to begin to break the place where we are and to start bringing good. It may not be totally good. It may not be totally fixed, but it'll start getting better. And when you see the glory of God, the glory of God means the presence, the tangible awareness that God is in it with you and that each step will be a step toward right and toward peace, toward appropriateness. It may not be everything you'd hoped, but it'll be better than what it is. And so it's the call to faith. And I know some of you guys, particularly those of you that are in that younger generation, you, you have embraced the fact, I have doubts. Hooray, because some in my generation and older pretend we didn't. We pretended everything was fine. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Which was not true. Jesus ruined your life. Right? You want to be greedy? Everybody loves greedy. He makes you not be greedy. You want to don't forgive? I would love to hate people. I love to hate people. The more I get to know some people, the better I like my dog. And I don't like my dog much. But see, Jesus gets all up in my grill and says, you need to forgive them. Well, fine. He's out to ruin your life because he has a better life for you than what you got, right? So I get... I get that there's doubt, but here's what Jesus told the guy that needed a miracle with his kid. He said, do you believe? Because all things are possible to him that believes. And I love this guy. He's honest. He said, Lord, I believe. <laughs> but there's a part of me that doesn't believe. It's okay to say that. But he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, that's what you need to pray. God, there's a part of me that believes. There's a part of me that doesn't believe at all. But would you help me believe? Because here's the deal. All you need is a mustard seed of faith. You can have a mountain of doubt. Grab the mustard seed of faith you have and start trusting God. Start saying, God, if you're even out there, because I don't know if I believe in you today. I think I have the atheist flu today. But I, I'm going to lean out and trust you. I'm, I'm going to come to the table and I'm going to open my heart to you, Jesus, that you're coming into this bread, you're coming into this cup, that some of you are coming into my life. And that as I ingest that and that bread and that cup, it distributes in my system that somehow your very presence is taking over in my system. My life, God, capture me. You can be totally full of doubt and still grow in faith. 
grow in faith, you'll see the glory of God. Let's stand. As the musicians are coming and those of you that are helping us serve communion, if you would come, let's lift our hearts in preparation and praise the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to the table here, let's remember that on some level he's coming into our presence in a way that's unusual, in a way that's different than your private devotional life in a way that's different than our singing songs together. The early church, both in scripture and in early history, you read it, they loved the table. In fact, the reason they gathered wasn't just to sing or hear preaching. The reason they gathered was because they believed that somehow this meal was a meal that would bring eternal life to bear in their hearts. That somehow, as they participated in this, that they believed they were participating in Jesus. His very life. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. They didn't understand it. We still don't understand it. Some try to understand it, but I don't think we can understand it. But in some way, Jesus is going to enter this bread for us. And it's going to become for us the body of Christ. In some way, Jesus is going to enter this cup. And it's going to become for us the blood of Christ. So somehow, Jesus is returning this morning. Physically. It's a little mini return. He will one day come physically in his full body. He's here in his broken body. But he's here. And if he would come and stand here in front of all of us physically and open his hearts to us, we would all fall on our faces and say, Welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to the table, in a real way, we're welcoming him. When you take that bread and you dip it in that cup, on some way, you're touching him. On some way, Augustine said it was, it, it's Jesus is there, but he's like under a veil, like a, a bride is under a veil. That under the veil of bread, he's in it. Under the veil of the cup, he's in it. And if we let our hearts be captured with it, the Bible actually says that we can eat life, healing, strength, forgiveness. We come to the table is coming to Jesus. Let's go ahead and lift the elements, if you would, to the Lord. God, through your goodness, we bring this bread and we bring this cup, which has come from the earth and through the work of human hands. We bring it as an offering to you. Accept it. We invite your presence into this moment. We celebrate that you've chosen this meal to make us one in Christ and to make us one with each other. We offer these gifts and ourselves in a single living act of praise. If you continue to lift the, cup, the bread, rather. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body. And by an act of faith, Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that you're entering the bread now. And that it is becoming for us the body of Christ. And so we can say, we welcome you, Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you'd lift the cup. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so again, by faith, Lord Jesus, we believe that you are entering into this cup and that it is becoming for us (laughs) the blood of Christ that washes our sin. And so we say to you, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. When you look up here and you see the bread and you see the cup, you know what we can say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why don't you come and get ready to serve? Let's declare this. The mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Come and receive the body and blood of Christ. Come and receive, in Jesus' words, the meal of eternal life.